Romans chapter 8. Let's start in verse 1. If you just happen to be visiting this morning, we've been studying the book of Romans, walking through it verse by verse with an emphasis on laying down the foundations of our faith. This sermon series is titled The Intro to Christianity Sermon Series. And so we have spent a lot of time in Romans 1 through 7, and we have this great big therefore in 8.1 that we want to start with this morning. It says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you're reading and you see the word therefore, you need to understand the context that comes before that. And so we have no condemnation, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, but why? Romans 1 through 7 explains that for us. We learn that through the blood of Jesus, God has dealt with our sins. Those are the things we have done to break God's law. God has dealt with each and every one of those sins through the blood of Jesus. As we've studied the last couple of weeks on the old nature, we have found out that it's not only a problem that we have done sins, but there's a problem that sin in me wants to continue sinning. And God has dealt with that old sin nature through, through the cross. Now, it took two weeks to deal with the old man. And so I, I certainly can't deal with it in this sermon. If you haven't heard it, you need to go back and listen to the last couple of weeks. But what I want you to see is the big therefore in Romans 8.1. It is based upon the fact my sins are dealt with through the blood and my old man is crucified with Christ and therefore I stand righteous before God, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done. Therefore, therefore there is no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Past tense, it's been done. We have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pause there. It says that God has done what the law could not do. So the law is a reference to the Old Testament law. And what we have learned through this study is that the law was incapable of making anybody righteous. The only thing the law could do was make it blaringly obvious we aren't righteous. We are lawbreakers. And so the law was given to demonstrate to us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior, but that was as far as the law could go. It could not make us righteous. We learned that God did something for us that the law could not. He created a way through Jesus Christ, and in Christ we are righteous. I want you to notice some important words in the back half of verse 4. It says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice it does not say by us. The righteous requirement of the law 
is filled in us or fulfilled in us, but not by us. It is in us because Christ is in us. And so our faith in Christ, our belief in him and our, our, our trust in what he has done, we walk according to Christ, according to the Spirit. And when we do that, the law is fulfilled in us. Now, we are introduced to a, an important concept here. We're talking about the intro to Christianity, right? The foundations of our faith. We are we're called, we are equipped, we are enabled to walk according to the Spirit. And so now as you look at the flow of Romans chapter 7, the, the flow of Romans chapters 1 through 7, we see that it's all about the old. It's all about what we've done wrong and how God has dealt with that. Thank God God has dealt with what was wrong. But that's all of the first seven chapters. We were sinners. We've sinned. We're guilty before God, but God has a solution, the blood of Jesus. And then we are awakened to, but you still have an old nature. God's dealt with the old nature. Now Romans chapter 8 starts to take a new turn, and we see that not only has God dealt with all that was wrong, He's went further than that, and He has given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and direct us And now, for the true sons and daughters of God, those who have been born again, we have the Holy Spirit to lead us, and we are to walk accordingly to the Spirit. Let's read on. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Two things about that portion of Scripture I want to point out. Number one, living according to the flesh and according to the spirit are two entirely different things. And it is impossible... To please God, living according to the flesh. So, everybody who has not been saved has no option but to live according to the flesh. That's the only possibility is to live according to the general principles of this world, the old world system, the flesh nature. And it's impossible to please God that way. The only way to please God is to live according to the Spirit. The second thing I want to point out here is how frequently it used the term set your mind. It says it about six times in one way or the other. Set your mind. Set your mind. Set your mind. Understand, this is a choice that has to be made. That we must choose to set our minds to follow and walk after the Spirit of God. We must choose to set our minds not to go after the way of the old man, to go after the way of the world. Now this is an important principle, especially for young Christians, because you need to understand something about God and something the Word of God teaches us. It's your responsibility to set your mind. I would say it this way in a stronger term. God will not brainwash you. 
God will not come into your life and brainwash you and force you to do anything. Set your mind the right way. It is a choice that has to be made. I think about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in that chapter, we are told to take our thoughts captive. This is an important reality of the Christian life is that we must actively, regularly, I would argue repeatedly, daily, take our thoughts captive. Now, it's interesting. The Bible does not say, don't think the thought. What the Bible says is take the thought captive. So there are times that sinful thoughts, they just come up out of nowhere. Thoughts of selfishness, thoughts of whatever it might be, lying. I mean, the list could go on. And out of nowhere, it's like, boom, there's a thought. It's a wrong thought. It's a sinful thought. You know that's a sinful thought. You need to understand it's good news to know. The Bible never told you don't think that thought. The Bible told you take it captive. Now, if you don't know that, you'll do what I did for several years of Christi- my, my Christianity. The first few years I was saved, I constantly felt condemned because I had bad thoughts. And I was taking my thoughts captive. I was not acting upon them. But the very fact that I still had bad thoughts that came in made me think something was wrong with me. And it wasn't until I matured in my faith and learned the very thing that I'm teaching you guys now that ultimately we just have to set our mind to follow the Spirit, to say no to the flesh. And we've got to learn to take our thoughts captive and not act upon sinful thoughts simply because sinful thoughts come and go. So set your mind on the things of God. Verse 9. You, however, speaking to Christians here, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Here's what I want us to see in verses 9 through 11. We are introduced right to this new, this new concept so far in the book of Romans that you as a Christian have the Holy Spirit. That is an awesome, awesome thought. Not only did God deal with all the wrong stuff of your past, and not only did God come up with a solution for your sins and for your sin nature, but He has given you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in you will change you. The Holy Spirit will direct you. One of the things the Bible teaches us that is that the role of the Holy Spirit is that He reproves us or He corrects us in matters of sin. And you will find that when you are truly born again, that the Holy Spirit will begin to check you when you have bad thoughts, when you're thinking about doing something you shouldn't do. The Holy Spirit will reprove you of sinful attitudes, of sinful actions. Not only does the Holy Spirit reprove us of sin, but He also leads us into righteousness. You'll find that the Holy Spirit at times will guide you, not just to say no to sin, but to do good. And so the Holy Spirit lives inside of every true believer. 
The word dwell there, it's an awesome word. He, he dwells in us. In other words, he doesn't come and go and come and go and come and go, but rather he abides in you as a believer. He lives in you as a believer. This is such an awesome thought to think that God himself, through the Holy Spirit, lives in every believer. It's just, it's an amazing an amazing thing that only true believers can experience, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we are empowered to live righteously. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Pause there. I just want you to look at the last section of that, uh, of that verse. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So when we studied the, the, the way God handles the old nature over the last couple of weeks, we learned that there are a handful of ways to look at it. One being, he's already dead because God sees that portion of me as dealt with in Christ on the cross. Here we see it's not my job to kill the flesh, but rather, what do we destroy? We put to death the deeds of the body or the flesh. So here's where my responsibility is. My responsibility is not to kill the old man, for he is in Christ, and Christ has already been crucified. My responsibility is to say no to the deeds. And that is a decision that has to be made. We put to death the deeds of the old nature. So when the, that old nature is, you know, if you were here the last few weeks, you heard me talking about being inside of a prison. When that old nature is rattling that cage and he's trying to get me to sin, trying to get me to, to kind of come out of obedience to God and, and take matters into my own hand and live according to the flesh, I have to put to death the deeds, and simply say, no, you no longer have any influence or power over my life. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Let's pause there. This is an awesome verse. I want to take a little bit of time to break it down. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So, first of all, that word sons... Uh, in the Greek, it has these, it, it's, if we were to translate it, what I would say correctly, from the Greek to English, it would be sons and daughters. So this isn't a male term, but it is, it is a mature word for children. And it's important to understand that. This is not the same word as children. The word son here, it implies a mature son. And the reason that is significant are two specific things. Number one, this term, of, it, it refers to a son who is mature enough to take on and help in the responsibilities of the family farm, the family business. And so, if you'll remember when Jesus was 12 years old, his family came into town for one of the feasts. 
And they came with a, you know, a group of the people they were traveling with. When it was time to leave, they all started to head back. But Jesus was not with them. He was in the temple, and he was teaching even the wise men. And the Bible tells us they were confounded at the wisdom coming from this 12-year-old boy. Eventually, Jesus' mother notices, where's Jesus? He's not in our group. And so they turn around, they go back to get him. They find him in the temple as a 12-year-old boy teaching even the wise. And Mary basically says to him, son, why, you know, why'd you do this to us, right? It's whatever a mother would say that, that had a 12-year-old son that wasn't with him. And his response to her was, I must be about my father's business. You see, he was, he, he was taking on that ownership. Like, this is the stage in life when I must do the work of the father. In John chapter 5, when Jesus heals uh, the, the man that was lame at the pool of Bethsaida, and ultimately it was on a Sabbath day, and so the religious leaders are not happy about it, and they come to Jesus, and they're saying, what are you doing healing this man on a Sabbath? You shouldn't be doing any work. And here's what he said. My father's working, and I must work. For the father shows the son, not the child, the father shows the son everything that he does, and the son does likewise. Now, this is an important principle because what we are told is that those who are led by the Spirit, we are the sons and daughters of God. So we have a role in the family business. We have work to do. Not only do we have work to do, we are responsible as sons and daughters, we are responsible to be about our father's business. Just like Jesus was saying there in the temple, I have a role in God's kingdom, and my role is to be responsible and advance his kingdom. This is why we are called the body of Christ. This is why we say we are the hands and the feet of Christ. So number one, this is a big word because children don't go to work. Sons go to work. Number two, this is also a big word. Because it is what is used when you deal with an inheritance. You do not give your inheritance to a five-year-old child. You wait until the child becomes mature enough, the word son here, before you give him or hand him the inheritance. This is the word that is used for those of us who have been saved and who are walking according to the Spirit. We are the sons and daughters of God who operate with authority in his kingdom, who work and we are about his business, advancing his kingdom. It is all his and we await an inheritance that is ours because he sees us as sons. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we see there's this closeness. Not only did God deal with, in Romans 1 through 7, all that was wrong with us, but he has given us his spirit. He has adopted us as sons and daughters, and there is this closeness with him now where we cry out to him, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So one of the things that I'm cautious to do, I'm, I'm normally cautious to tell people that they are saved. 
Every now and then, there's sort of a rare case when I can just tell in my spirit that a particular individual needs that reassurance. But verse 16 teaches us that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so what we see here is that the Holy Spirit, when we're truly saved, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. Like, you don't need someone else to tell you you're saved. You know. You know that you know that you know when your life has been changed and the Holy Spirit is literally dwelling inside of you. It's not possible for that to happen and you have no consciousness of it. And so I'm always cautious to tell people, that are like, I just I need to know if I'm saved or not. Tell me if I'm saved. I'm, well, the Holy Spirit should be doing that work. And so generally, I'm very cautious with telling people that because we see God himself bears witness of that. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know that last statement provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? I think it's interesting it's added on there because it's not really connected to being a child or being a son or being a daughter. But it is one more time that we are simply reminded that following God here on this earth does not mean we will not suffer. But rather... The suffering that we go through, as we're about to read, it pales in comparison to what lies ahead. I cannot overexpress the importance of knowing this as a Christian, especially a young Christian. You have to understand something. There is nowhere in this entire Bible that God ever promised that you would not have earthly sorrow. Nowhere does it promise that. Nowhere does God promise to keep you from earthly suffering. And here's why that's important. If you believe that, what you'll find is that as soon as earthly suffering happens, you're going to turn around and you're going to leave. You're going to say, well, what's the point? They estimate that approximately 80% of American Christians who make a profession of faith that 80% of them aren't even in church a year down the road. That's a staggering number. Eight out of ten. That's a, that's a massive number. Well, the reason why is because in large part, we have lost sight of the true gospel in America, and we're peddling a false gospel that says, if you'll just come to church, if you'll just try Jesus, he's going to fix everything. He's going to pay your bills. You're never going to be sick. You're never going to have sorrow. Everything's going to work out great because God is good, and he just wants you to be happy, and he just wants you to be blessed, and he just wants you to have a good time, and, and it's going to be great, 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 great. Well, why do we have 80% people gone a year later? Because it doesn't even take a full year to figure out that ain't true. But if you started and made your profession, you made your decision to supposedly come to God based upon the thought that he's going to fix everything, it's just, you're, you're going to have a hard wake-up call. Whether it's the first week or the second week or one or two months down the road, you're going to find out we endure earthly suffering. 
But the first century church, they saw it differently. We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him later. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, that was the mindset and should be the mindset of us. This was the mindset of early Christianity. They had a focus on what was ahead. They had a focus on what was to come. They weren't wrapped up in, what can God do for me right now? You know, it was, it was rather that there was an overwhelming gratitude that God would love a sinner like me to start with. That he would be willing to send his son to die in my place so that I wouldn't have to die for what I've done. That's enough. And then to think that heaven awaits me where I will spend forever with the Lord and there will be no suffering, there will be no sorrow, there will be no death. That was the motivation to keep pressing on. And folks, it is the right motivation for us to keep pressing on as Christians today. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's a very wordy sentence there. And what we are told, here's, here's the nutshell, here's what I want you to see. It's not only us who are looking forward to a better world, but all of creation itself. Because when the fall happened, it didn't just impact humans. It impacted all of creation. And we see that all of creation longs for this transformation that is coming. And the one that we're most looking forward to, it says, is the, the redemption or the, how's the word, how is the wording, the, uh, uh, the redemption of our bodies. We talked about that last week, right? How we're going to get new glorified bodies and the, the flesh that we have when we get to heaven is not going to be like what we have now. And there's going to be nothing evil about it and it's not going to desire anything evil. We see here, this is one of the things that we as children of God look forward to the most. And I've got to confess, I know it's true in my life. When I think about how great heaven's going to be, and I don't know that this is wrong, I really don't, but one of the greatest things about heaven is that I'm not going to battle the old nature anymore. I, I'm thank God for that. It's actually, if you're like me, it's probably one of the number one things that you don't like about Christianity in this world is you want, you know, you want, you just want the flesh to go away. And I know heaven's going to be great and I look forward the most to seeing Jesus face to face. I really do. I look forward the most to how great heaven's going to be but I am longing for the day when I don't have to battle this flesh nature anymore. Amen. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is a reference to heaven. It is our hope. In the Bible, the word hope has a much stronger word than the way we use it in modern culture. Uh, In modern culture, the word hope has a different connotation, right? We will say, I hope that I pass the test. You know, I hope that I get a raise. I hope that my team wins. What we really mean by that is, I wish. That's That's what we're doing. Like, I wish that this would happen. The word hope, biblically, has a much stronger connotation. To hope for something means I know for a fact it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And because I know with certainty that this thing is going to happen, it gives me hope to push through what I'm going through now because I know for a fact where I'm headed to. And so our hope is in heaven. We're not, we're not crossing our fingers and wishing that it's real. We're not crossing our fingers and wishing that somehow we can make it there. We know that it's real. We know where we're headed. And because we know it, that becomes our hope that pushes us through. Let's read on. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You will find that at times as a Christian, there are things. Think about that. Groanings too deep for words. I don't know about you, but in my life, that type of prayer, it typically happens because of suffering. That type of prayer where I don't have the words for it, and it's like, The Holy Spirit is praying, and I know that the Holy Spirit is praying through me, but I don't even have the words to express. I I don't even know what needs to happen, but I know that God knows. I don't even understand a solution going forward, but I know that God knows. And so I don't even know what to pray, really, but I'm praying about it, and it's as if there just are no words for it, but there's a consciousness that the Holy Spirit knows. And, And the Holy Spirit is helping me right now communicate with God about this thing. And there have been times in my life when it's been that kind of prayer that it's just a matter of of days or weeks down the road where I see an answer and I realize that was the answer to the prayer that I was praying when I really didn't even know what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit was praying through me. Let's go on. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all those, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Let's pause there. This is a verse that I recommend every Christian memorizes. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. This is a hard thing to believe when you're going through trauma. This is a hard thing to believe, especially as a young Christian who does not have a lot of experiences to look back on yet. When you're in the middle of a storm and it seems like everything's going wrong, it's hard to think, well, what, you know, I see good in this. Instead, we think, what good could possibly come out of this? But as someone who's been serving the Lord now for 
24 years, I can tell you there have been multiple times in my life when I've gone through a storm, I've gone through trauma, it has seemed like, God, how in the world could you do anything good with this? But it's after that storm is over and I've come up out of the storm that I can look back on it and say, God, you are with me through it all. And now that it's said and done, I can see where you worked on my heart. I can see where you are working here or there. And no matter what I face, my God is strong enough. My God is wise enough to take it and use it for my good. Understanding this truth will change the way that you handle stress and trauma in your life. There will never come a time when you find stress and trauma enjoyable. But you will find this, that when you learn the truth of this verse, the way you handle it will be different. You'll find that anxiety has a much weaker grip on your heart when you understand and you can say it with absolute certainty, all things, everything, God works together for my good. Doesn't matter what I face, doesn't matter what I'm going through, my God is able, and He does work it out for my good. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A lot of big theological words there. And uh, the only thing that I want to this morning draw out of that passage is this truth. That God has predestined his sons and daughters to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the goal of mature Christianity to become more like Christ. And what I want you to see is that He is the target. He is the goal. This is important because if your goal, if your target is some other Christian in your life that might, be, might even be a hero of your faith, eventually that person is going to fall short. And so we cannot allow people to be the mark of, of, of how we want to be. You need to understand, God doesn't want you to be like anybody else. He wants you to be like Jesus. He is the goal, and He is the goal alone. And sometimes we can, there's certain people in our life that, that we can point to that's sort of like a hero of the faith, somebody that's made a huge impact in your life, somebody that's made a big difference. And, and I think that we should be able to live lives that people can look at us and say, I want to be like that to a degree. But it does not matter who the hero is. He is a fallen man or woman. And at some point, even the heroes of the faith fail us. My eyes and your eyes must be on Jesus, and you need to understand that He is the goal, He is the mark, and God says that He has predestined us to become like Him, and this is the goal of true Christianity, is to become more and more and more like Jesus. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is such an awesome conclusion. So if God's dealt with my sins through the blood of Jesus, if God's dealt with my old nature through the cross, 
and, and, and the body of Christ being crucified on the cross, if God has given me a new nature through the resurrection, if God has given me His Spirit to guide and direct me, if He's for us, who can be against us? That's an awesome question. The answer is nobody. But we've got to walk ourselves through the process of realizing that. There is nobody who can be against us that He can't stop. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now He's going to give us two reasons why this is true. That nobody can be against us because God is for us. Therefore, whatever they want to do, God's capable of stopping. He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pause. I pray the Holy Spirit helps me explain what I want to explain here. The question is, how will God not graciously give us all things? That's the question. Do you ever feel that way as a Christian? Like God can't bless me freely because I'm not good enough here, I'm not good enough there. That God can't bless me freely with whatever God wants to bless me with because I'm stopping God from being able to bless me because I'm not this and I'm not that and I don't read enough and I don't pray enough and I don't keep my thoughts captive enough and I don't do this enough and this enough. And so there's this constant feeling of God can't bless me. This is the way most Christians feel. But I want you to understand the argument that's being made here. The clear rhetorical answer is God can bless you freely in all things. That you do not tie the hands of God with your inability. But why? Why? The answer is because God gave His Son so that He could bless you freely. And God's ability to bless His sons and daughters freely is not based upon what Jesus did plus your obedience. I cannot overstress the importance of this. I used to feel for years that there was no way that God could truly pour out His blessing on me totally, completely because I simply couldn't perform well enough. I was conscious of my lack. I was conscious of my weakness. And I constantly felt like God couldn't bless me until this verse set me free. What's being stated here is what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. And what that means is that if you need to accomplish something that's really not all that hard to accomplish, but you can't do it until you do something really great, that if you accomplish the great thing, you will follow through on the lesser thing. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine that a father finds out that his seven-year-old son has leukemia and that they've caught it early enough that with the right treatment, the boy should live. But they are concerned that if they don't start treatment in the next three to six months, absolute max, probably the leukemia will take the boy over and he's going to die. The problem is the procedure costs $40,000 and the father does not have the money. His friends do not have the money. There's no way to to raise it. There's no fundraising going on, and he's in a bad predicament. 
where his son needs $40,000 for a procedure that would save his life. The father finds out that about 10, 11 weeks down the road, there's a half marathon coming to town, and it's a paid race, and whoever wins gets $40,000. Father's never ran, but he thinks to himself, this is the only opportunity I have to save my boy. And he starts training immediately. Day one, tries to run a mile or two, finds himself to the point that he's sick, that he's about throwing up. Thinking to himself, how am I ever going to do a half marathon? But he keeps pushing himself. He, keeps, he starts eating right. He starts training. Before you know it, he's running three, three, four, five miles. And he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing until finally the day comes, the race is here. And though there are thousands of other participants, this man runs with all of his heart as if his boy's very life depended upon it. And he crosses the line and he wins the $40,000. What do you think he's going to do with it? He's going to have the surgery done for his son. The idea that he would take that money and go buy a truck with it is absolute crazy nonsense. He would never do it. You see, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. It makes no sense at all that the father would run the race get the money in hand, and then do nothing with it. The easier thing is writing that check to have his son get the procedure that he needs. That's the easier thing, but he had to go through a harder thing to be able to write the check. That's the argument that's being made here. Now let me ask it this way, just like it's asked here. How is it possible who, that God, who didn't spare up his own son, he chose to, to give his son for you, so that he might bless you freely, how is it possible that he couldn't bless you freely now? He has already done the hard work of giving his son. And so God's not up there with his hands tied thinking, oh, I wish I could bless my sons and daughters, but I can't because they're not perfect. It is in Christ and in Christ alone and through Christ and because of Christ that our God can and does bless us freely because of what Christ has done. Praise the Lord. So if he's for us, who could be against us? And then we have a second argument to just drive the point further home. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So now we have the idea of a courtroom. And you, as one of God's sons or daughters, you're on the stand and your accuser is over here bringing a charge against you. And the question is, what are they going to say? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And so God has already decided how we are justified. He's the one that gets to decide because he's God. So what can anybody else say? They're literally talking to the judge who saved me. Therefore, it doesn't matter what they say. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So, who, who could possibly condemn us before God? Nobody. Except, in theory, it could be Christ. Jesus could. But he's the one who died for us and is interceding for us. So the very one who has the authority to condemn us is the one who has chosen to save us instead and to die for us. And on top of that, he's interceding for us right now. Now we see this incredible truth 
if God is for us, who can be against us? Talk about peace. Talk about the most amazing peace when you realize God's not up there with his hands tied, unable to bless you because you, you don't get everything right. It's the blood that deals with my sins. It's the cross that deals with my old nature. And, and God has dealt with everything that needs to be dealt with through Jesus. And because of that, he can bless us freely. Which leads us to the great conclusion of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm going to pause there. He's pointing out that it was foretold that many Christians would go through a whole lot of persecution. And apparently at the time of this letter, there was a lot of persecution that was happening. Yet, even though they were being persecuted, he says, we have not been separated from the love of God. You can kill me, but you can't separate me from the love of God. You can persecute me, but you can't separate me from the love of God. You can take everything I have, but you can't separate me from the love of God. You can put me in prison, but you can't separate me from the love of God. That's what's being said here. And then in verse 37, he says, can these things separate us? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. As our worship team comes, I want to reiterate this statement. God's plan for you is complete. God, God didn't leave anything out. God didn't forget anything. I'm telling you, His plan is 100% done and complete. It is dealt with every sin that you've ever committed, dealt with through the blood of Jesus. The old nature, dealt with through the cross. The ability to serve the Lord dealt with because He's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. God's already demonstrated the length to which He would go to be able to bless you freely. And therefore, because He has done it, because Christ died, because the price was paid, we have absolute confidence. He's going to bless us in all things. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us.